I'm glad that you are, are here. I want to go back to the baby dedication thing real fast. I was just so nervous. I didn't want to butcher names, say anything foolish up there. Uh, so now that that's over. I, I want to say something to the families. We are just so honored that you are a part of this family. And we care so deeply about each and every one of you as families. And know that we're committed uh, to you as families. I know it's easy in today's day and age uh, to just say you agree to something and then just kind of walk past it and not really think much more about it. I think of the uh, you know, iTunes terms and conditions. It comes up. It's like 26 pages. You're like, yeah, just agree. Click, whatever. Uh, but that's not true for us and our commitments to you. Uh, everything from multi-generations, uh, surrogate grandparents and crazy extra aunts and uncles, uh, to programming, uh, to just befriending you and walking alongside you and, and training you up in, in the ways of the Lord. Whatever it takes, we as a church are committed to you as family. So thanks. Thanks for who you are. Uh, for having more of who you are and, uh, and for making us a part of who you are. Thanks so much for all of that. Just a, just a great morning. So proud of you guys. We've got so much to cover this morning, and, uh, and I just want to jump into it. So let me say a prayer for us, and we'll dive into chapter 8 of our story. God, we thank you that you are the greatest storyteller of all time. And not only have you told hypothetical, theoretical, uh, theoretical stories, Lord, that are way out there in the distance that we can't relate to, you have told a story that includes us. And that envelops our own story and that makes sense of our own story, God. And so we just want to say thank you for that today. Would you breathe your spirit into this place, God? We don't just want this to be a book study right now. We want it to be an encounter with the holy, with the divine, with you and with your son. So would you come in and do what only you can do? You can only change hearts, God. Only you can, can radically transform us from the inside out. So would you do that now? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you're joining us for the first time this morning, first time in a long time, we're going through the Bible cover to cover, utilizing a resource called the story. What it does is it takes different excerpts from the scriptures and it puts them together kind of in a novel format. Shows us how all the different stories in the Bible connect to one another, but more importantly, how they all connect to our own lives and hopefully how your story connects to God's story, his much larger, larger and grander story. Um, if you're new to West Bowl, stop by the Welcome Center. We've got a couple of copies of this book for you because we're so serious about going through this together and reading together each and every week. We just think God will do some powerful things as we get to know and fall in love with his story. Uh, this weekend, we're in chapter 8 of the story. We're moving along, people. We're making progress. And uh, chapter 8 deals with the biblical book of Judges. And chances are that most of you have not spent a great deal of time in the book of Judges, and that is a problem I hope to remedy uh, after this morning. I'm excited to share with you some insights from this chapter. Last week, we learned in chapter 7 that under the courageous leadership of Joshua and the faithful obedience of the Israelites, this special group of people that God called out of the world to strengthen and solidify so we could send back into the world to help save and redeem it, this group of people, this new group of people is now living in a new land. It's called the promised land. It gets its name from the fact that 700 years earlier, God promised this land to a man named Abraham. He said, Abraham, your family, your descendants will one day live in this place. I promise you. And now we're actually living in the fullness and fruition of that promise. But as many of you know from personal experience, whenever you move, whenever you uproot your family, whenever you go somewhere different, it takes time, doesn't it, to adjust. It takes time to get used to the new ways. Major transitions, it, it, it forces you to find a new way and a new rhythm. And that's really what chapter 8 is all about in our story. It's about God's people trying to figure out, how are we supposed to live here? What does it look like for us to live here? What does our way, our rhythm look like here? Because you see, for 400 years, they lived as slaves. Then the next 40 years, they lived as vagabonds. 
And during that time, they developed some pretty twisted ways of thinking. They went from a slave mentality to a victim mentality, neither of which is the victor mentality they were created to live for. And as we're going to see, those old habits, those old patterns are tough to break out of. Even though you're in a new land, to have a new way of thinking, a new way of living, it takes a little bit of time. In chapter 8, we read about some of the most famous characters in all of scriptures. You've got this daring, dashing, debonair woman named Deborah, every D synonym I could find. You've also got this crazy little twerp named Gideon. And then you've got this long-haired mixed martial art fighter named Samson. Kind of covers the gamut in this chapter. Interesting characters. Go back through and read chapter 8. But I think this entire chapter, it really boils down to a cycle. A vicious cycle that the people of God continually fell into after they arrived in the land. Let me read to you part of this. It's on pages 103 and 104 in your storybook. If not uh, the Bible, if you're reading the Bible, it's Judges 2. It says this. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Did I skip? Yes, okay, good. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord and the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Asherahs. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge, he was with the judge and he saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as that judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned their ways Ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them, they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Did you pick up on the cycle? I call it the sin cycle. And it goes something like this. God blesses the people. They more or less forget about him and worship other things. God then withdraws his hands and punishes the people by having other nations come and overrun them. After his people realize how foolish they've been, and what in dire straits they find themselves in, God rushes in to save them, and he does it by sending a judge. Now today we think of a judge as someone who sits in a courtroom and sends people to prison, but a judge back then was honestly more of a political leader, more of a spiritual leader, honestly more of a warrior. Judge and warrior really kind of go hand in hand. They were called by God to rescue the people of God from the oppression that they were under. And as long as this judge was alive, the people followed the ways of God, and they followed this judge. They lived according to God's promises and God's commandments. But as soon as that judge died, they went right back into idolatry and all kinds of evil. Right? They'd be overrun by another nation. They'd cry out again. God would raise up another judge, and the cycle would just go around and around and around and around. Are you understanding how that works? It happens six times, this cycle in the book of Judges. It's crazy how it happens. Here, for you history buffs, is kind of how it breaks down. The people fall into idolatry, so God sends the Mesopotamians to take over. He raises up the judge Athenial to save them. Well, after Athenial dies, they forget about the Lord and they fall into the hands of the Moabites. God raises up another judge named Ehud. 
Well, after Ehud dies, the people again don't know the Lord and fall away from him. They fall into idolatry, so the Canaanites come in and clean house. Deborah saves them that time. After that, the Midianites come in, and Gideon saves them from the hands of the Midianites. After that, the Ammonites come through, and Jephthah is the one who saves them from them. And then finally, their last round of idolatry, the Philistines come in and take over, and Samson saves them from the Philistines. Then, of course, there were the termites who were delivered by the judge Orkin, but that just... It just didn't fit into the story. There wasn't room for it. But think about it. Of the 330 years that chapter 8 covers, 111 of those years, at least a third of the people's time in the promised land, is spent with their hands wrapped around evil things or evil people hands wrapped around their neck. This isn't the way the promised land was supposed to be. This isn't what God intended. This isn't the abundant life that he had promised But before we judge them too critically, we should probably come to the terms of the fact that most of us are stuck in a similar cycle, aren't we? We read about God's people doing these foolish things over and over and over again, and it's so easy to be tempted. You fools! Didn't you learn your lesson six times? I mean, come on. Was was Egypt not enough for you? Was the Red Sea not enough for you? Was manna from heaven not enough for you? Was, was Jericho not enough for you? Figure it out already. You keep doing these crazy, destructive, damaging, detrimental things to yourself. You guys are a bunch of idiots. Oh, wait. I kind of do the same thing. Oh, wait. I'm kind of stuck in that same cycle. Oh, wait. That kind of describes me too. Not just the judges. See, every person since the beginning of time, they found themselves trapped in a cycle like this. The particulars are different, but we all struggle in one way or another with this repetitive, reoccurring pattern of sin. I've seen this own pattern in my own life, right? I get off course with God, I suffer the consequences. I cry out because I can't do anything about it. God in his mercy comes and saves me. I'm like, God, I'm committed to you forever, only a few hours later to fall again even further and harder than I did before. Do you know that cycle? Yay, God, I'm all for you. Who's God? God, I need you. Yay, God, I'm all for you. What, God? Ah. This nasty, vicious, reoccurring cycle. This is how I describe it in my own life. I settle. I suffer. I feel stupid. I'm filled with shame. And this is kind of what it looks like. Duh. What am I doing? If you're stuck in this cycle, you know how tiring it is, don't you? You know how frustrating it is. You know how exhausting and defeating it can be. In fact, some of you have been in this cycle for so long. You are so discouraged. You are so disheartened right now. You're so beat up by the cycle. You don't think victory is ever possible. You think this cycle is going to describe you forever. You might be thinking to yourself, what's wrong with me? Other people seem to be figuring this Jesus thing out without much trouble, without much effort, but not me. I keep stumbling again and again and again. I don't understand why I can't get through this or overcome this or come to terms with this. I pray, I read, I go to church, I try my hardest, but I feel like I'm still the same old person that I was before Christ. Anybody know that feeling? That same stuff that I dealt with and struggled with before just keeps coming back in my life again and again and again. Listen to how the Apostle Paul said it. He's one of the strongest Christians of all time. Listen to how he describes his struggle with the cycle. We know that the law is spiritual, but I'm not. I'm unspiritual. I'm sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I'm doing. For what I want to do, I don't do it. But what I hate, that's what I keep doing. I have the desires to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil that I don't want to do, that's what I keep on doing. 
Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. In my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work. I see another cycle at, life, at work in my life. It's waging war against me. It's making me a prisoner. What a wretched man am I. And if you've been stuck in that cycle long enough, you probably know that feeling, don't you? Well, let's be honest. We all know that feeling because the story of Paul is the story of Judges, which, oh, by the way, is your story. We all know this feeling all too well. We all know what it feels like to not be good enough, to not be able to work hard enough, to not be able to pray fervently enough to overcome the sin and the selfishness and the shame that's in our life. It's just like, ah, I'm just stuck. The scariest part about this cycle is that it messes up everything. If you, if you ride this ride for a little while, everything in your head is going to get messed up. Let me show you three examples. The first is it's going to mess up your understanding of who God is. See, after you've been on this cycle for a while, you start to think that God is frustrated with you. You start to think that he's so tired of your failures and he looks at your sin in your life and the mess that you have made and he stands kind of far off with arms folded and a frown on his face. Like, can't you figure it out, Thomas? I see him as a judge in the classic sense of the word. He's sitting in a courtroom adding up all the bad things that I've done and he's just waiting to, to dish out this harsh sentence in my life. I hear him say something like this. Yeah, your sins are forgiven. Yeah, your ticket's punched for eternity. But figure it out. Stop being such a slug. And don't think that I missed that sinful thing you did four minutes ago. No, I saw that. I'm not stupid. I see everything you do. I just don't lose my temper as much as I used to back in the day. What are you staring at? Get back to work. That's how a lot of us hear the voice of the Father, the voice of God in our lives. It messes up our view of God. We're stuck on this cycle, so we think God has to be mad, with, mad at us because we're just stuck on this cycle. We're so foolish, we can't get off of it. God must be so frustrated with our foolishness. It messes up our view of God, but it also messes up how we view ourselves. We start to think that not only have we done something wrong, but something must be inherently wrong with me. Why can't I figure this out? Like Adam and Eve in the garden, we make a mistake. That mistake causes us to feel naked and exposed. That exposure makes us feel afraid and vulnerable. So we run and hide from God and start to hurt other people. That's a pretty vicious cycle too, isn't it? This is such nasty stuff. Not only have we sinned, but now I'm a sinner at the core of who I am. I'm not worthy of your trust, God. I'm not worthy of your love. And then ultimately this cycle messes up your understanding of salvation. You come to believe that it's up to you to break out of the cycle. You have to strive harder. You have to be better. We've come to believe that we have to please God as we keep God pleased with us. All we gotta do is work a little bit more, have more discipline, show more effort, be a little bit more resilient. We, we save ourselves by showing God, I get it, God. I know what you did for me on the cross and I'm living a life of gratitude now. I'm different than those in the book of Judges. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. Not at all. I haven't changed it all from that book. Six times, it sounds like a lot, and it is a lot when you read it in that book. It's not a lot compared to how many times I've been in the cycle. <laughs> I think I've stopped counting again and again and again. And no amount of effort will ever help us to break out of this cycle. Think about a rat running in a wheel like this. He doesn't get out of this wheel by running faster or running harder. Freedom won't come if the rat would just be a little bit better of a rat or try a little harder to be a better rat. The opposite is true. The harder he tries, the faster he runs. In an attempt to get off of that wheel, he only exhausts himself. He actually never gets off. Nathan and I were talking about it this past week. This sin cycle where we're trapped in this same stuff again and again and again, it feels like a black hole sometimes. It feels like quicksand, doesn't it? What happens in those two realms? You, the, the harder you try, the more it sucks you in, right? 
The more effort you exert, the more you get sucked into these things. That's exactly where some of you are right now. In an attempt to overcome your sin, you're actually sinking deeper into it. I mean, you put up barriers, you downloaded software, you got an accountability partner, you committed to a daily quiet time, you memorized one, you gave one, you committed one, only to find yourself fantasizing and fooling around in even crazier ways than you did before you did all that stuff. What happened to me? It's called the sin cycle. You're stuck on it. And you think you can resolve it by just working harder and performing better. So guess what you're doing? You're just going around and around and around. You see, we're just like the people in the book of Judges. We're just like the people in chapter 8. We need someone to break us out of this cycle, don't we? We need someone to rescue us from this cycle. We need a judge to come in and break this thing down. And maybe more than any other chapter in our story so far, chapter 8 points to Jesus Christ. Every one of the chapters on this lower level points to Jesus in the upper level, but this one especially. You see, Deborah, Gideon, Samson, they were great judges. They were great deliverers and great warriors, but the people they rescued always ended up back in the cycle. After just a few years, they were all struggling with the same stuff all over again. So God sent another judge, a final judge named Jesus, to completely, once and for all, and for all of eternity, save people from the cycle. Look at Isaiah 33:22. Look at the language used here. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He has come to punish us and hurt us and yell at us because we're so foolish and we can't get out of this stupid cycle. Is that what it says? No, no, no. He's our judge, our lawgiver, our king. Normally we, we, we shy away from him. We're afraid of those terms. You know what that judge has come to do? He's come to save you. He's come to save you. The judge doesn't want to, to condemn you. He wants to save you. The judge doesn't want to hurt you or yell at you. He wants to save you. Remember that passage from Romans 7 that we read before where Paul's like, ah, I'm such a fool. I'm such a sinner. Why can't I figure this Christian life out? Let me tell you, it gets a little bit better. He says this later on. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Who will rescue me from this cycle of selfishness, stupidity, sin, and shame? Who? Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. He delivers me, interesting language there, through Jesus. There is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ. Because through Christ, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the cycle. You are set free from that burdensome cycle that you were trapped in. For what the law was powerless to do, because you couldn't do it on your own, God did it by sending his son. God basically did it for you, that passage says. See, most of us think, think this way about Christ. We think that Christ came and he, he hit the reset button in our life. He gave us a new start, uh, a new chapter, uh, a new beginning. And that, does, that, that all sounds good, doesn't it? But then what, what we think about in, in, in those terms is, it's up to us now to make good on the new chapter that we received. It's up to us to make good on the fresh start. It's up to us now, after God fixed everything back here, we were given a fresh start, we better not mess it up over here. He, he freed me from that, but now it's on my shoulders to show him that I get it, to show him that I wanted it, to show him that I appreciate it. You ever feel that way? Maybe you've never put words to it, but it's like he, he hit the reset button only to put you in the cycle again. That doesn't make any sense. That's what the Bible says at all. The Bible says that Jesus became sin. He became that vicious cycle. He took on your shame, your stupidity, your selfishness. He said, give me that cycle. Give me your life that's trapped in that rat wheel, and I'll give you my life. Because my life's not trapped in that rat wheel. My life is free, and I want you to be free. Give me the rat wheel, church. 
and I'll give you heaven itself. That's crazy. That's the biblical message. Not that God gave you a new rat wheel, a shinier, polished rat wheel with, I don't know what you put in down there, newspaper, whatever. He didn't give you a new rat wheel. He broke you free from it altogether. He didn't give you a new start to try to do the cycle better the second time around. He broke the cycle completely. Does this make sense? I know we got an hour less of sleep, but this is, I need you with me. I need you with me. I'm sweating up here. This is, this is gospel. Do you know, do you know how you break that, that process, that cycle of settling, stupidity, and shame? You know how you break it? This is how you break it right here. See, that's not a cycle. That's a definitive once and for all. That doesn't go around and around and around. That happens once forever. So the cycle can be done forever. If you read this week in chapter 8, you read that the judges, they did some crazy things to rescue the people, didn't they? Deborah had to stand up and be like, listen, I'm going to get all the credit for this, guys. You okay with that? I'm a lady. And that was crazy in the day. Gideon had to take an army of 32,000 and will them down to 300 so he could fight an army of over 100,000. That's crazy. And then Samson, just everything he does is crazy, but he takes his jawbone and just goes to town on people with it. That's crazy. But you know what's really crazy? You know how crazy, it, what, what crazy thing it took to rescue you from your cycle? That. That's crazy. That is crazy. It took the cross to break the cycle. You see, unlike every other world religion, Christianity is different. Every other world religion says, it is your responsibility to fix this. You feel this way? Well, it's up to you to not feel this way anymore. Break this cycle, pull yourself out of the black hole, get out of the quicksand, and if it takes you this life or a thousand other lives, well, good luck with that. You messed it up, so it's up to you to fix it. It's not true of Christianity. You messed it up and God fixed it. You messed it up so God took it on his shoulders, not placing the burden on your shoulders. And guys, he did it. He broke the cycle forever. You're not in the rat wheel anymore. So why are you still acting like you are? Because of the cross, you've been rescued from your guilt. You've been relieved of your shame. You've been redeemed from all your inadequacies and insufficiencies. It was done for you forever. That's why Jesus says it is finished on the cross. Well, what's finished, God? The cycle, the nasty cycle that you were stuck in. That, that polar bear doesn't describe you. This should describe you. You're not filled with shame and selfishness and stupidity anymore. You're free in Christ. This is a message about the enormity and the power of the cross. This is all about what he did on that day for you. It's amazing. Because of the cross, you don't get a new start. You don't get a second chance. You don't get another shot to figure it out. You're never going to. You get a new destiny, a new identity, a new name, and a new heart. Not a second chance. I don't need a second chance. I'm going to mess it up just like I did the first chance. I need a new me. Because the old me, like Paul said, is messed up. Let me, let me describe it to you this way. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, you have literally gone from a slave to sin to a son of God. You have literally gone from a sinner who's messed up and struggling all the time to a saint living in the kingdom. You have gone from being enslaved to a cycle to someone who is now free in Christ. You're now called by your real name. You're now called by your righteous name. You are now a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are now God's special possession. And nothing, nothing you ever do will ever change that. 
Nothing. It's a guaranteed promise for those who are in Christ. You don't have to try to become this person. You don't have to make or manufacture or manipulate yourself to become this type of person. You are this person because God bought you. Because God wanted you to be this person, so he made it happen for you. He knew you couldn't do it on his own, so he sent his son to do it for you. He's not mad at you that you can't do it. He knew from the beginning of time that you couldn't do it. See, most of us, when we sin, when we mess up, we think that our sin is like this huge trash heap that separates us from God. We're like, Jesus, I love you. Can you hear me over there? I'm so sorry for this mess. I'll do my very best to make it up to you. Let me, let me try to pick this up. I think I can recycle this. Maybe I can reuse this. You try to go after the pile on your own. But what if you changed your view completely? What if you saw Jesus with you right here on this side of the pile? Like, wow, that's a lot of trash. Dude, don't you ever sleep? <laughs> but I know. I know this was going to happen. I know it's how your flesh is. I know that's what happens when you're left to your own. That's why I'm here with you. That's why I came to die for you. So you wouldn't have to go through the trash. I already went through it, and now we'll deal with it over time, but I'm right here with you on this side of it. Let me give you a couple other examples here to try to drill this home. The first is this. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, we hear the word transformed. Be transformed into a disciple. The word there is literally where we get the word metamorphosis. What images come to mind when you hear the word metamorphosis? The process of a caterpillar, right? Metamorphosis has everything to do with the transformation of a caterpillar. If you were to ask a biologist, what's inside of this caterpillar? He would say, inside of this caterpillar is literally the DNA of a butterfly. This is a butterfly. I know it's not, it's a caterpillar. I can see it, it's fuzzy and weird and ah. Where's the butterfly? No, 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 inside of it is a butterfly. Its very makeup is that of a butterfly. It doesn't have to become a butterfly or work to make itself a butterfly. It is a butterfly. It just needs to be matured into one. It needs to be metamorphosed into one. Beating up a poor caterpillar for not being more of a butterfly is kind of foolish. Why don't you look more like him? Come on already, figure it out. You're going to hurt his feelings. Back up. What do he ever do to you? The little caterpillar, he will become that. That's who he is in his very essence. He just needs some time to mature into that. That's how it is with you, Christian. You have been changed. Your DNA inside of you. When you say yes to Jesus, he changes you. Everything inside of you is different now. Your DNA is that of Christ. Sure, you might look like and feel like and smell like a caterpillar, whatever caterpillars smell like, but that's not who you are. You just need a little bit of time to mature and be metamorphosed into who you were created to be, into who you were redeemed to be. All right, that one didn't, that one didn't fly too well with you. Let's try another example. Like, I'm God's little butterfly? What are you talking about? Okay, how about this? How about diamonds? Did you know every single diamond at one point starts as a huge lump of coal? This beautiful jewel was once this ugly rock, but now, after it's been transformed, after it's been changed, after it's been fashioned by forces outside of itself, over time, it has matured and, be, and been metamorphosed, if you will, into the most beautiful rock on the planet. And what's crazy is you, you can't change it back to what it was. You know, it's like, ladies, you don't wake up one morning like, my diamond, it's a piece of coal. You don't worry about that, do you? You know it is that forever. Christian, 
Jesus died to transform you from kind of a worthless, ugly piece of coal into this beautiful diamond. He did all the work for you. You are now that diamond, and you cannot go back. Some of you just love feeling like you're a lump of coal. You're not. You love acting like you're a lump of coal. You love thinking that deep inside of you, I'm nothing but a lump of coal. Nothing could be further from the truth. God died to make you and redeem you into a beautiful diamond. Okay, still not working. Let's go for a third. Here we go. Another example I think revolves around kids. There are not levels of being a kid. There are not levels of sonship or daughtership, if you will. My daughters are my daughters, period. They don't have to perform to be more of my daughters. They're not ever in risk of not being my daughters. Once you are a son or a daughter, you are a son or a daughter forever, right? You don't have to perform. You don't have to make it up. You don't have to manufacture that identity. That is your identity. And over time, all you're called to do is mature more into that identity. Same is true for you. Again, the best way to describe it is you've gone from a slave to a son. You are now called the son of God, a daughter of the king. That's your identity. That's who you are. Nothing you do, nothing you don't do will ever change that identity and that truth. You weren't given a second chance at the cross. You were given a savior. And now, the only thing you have to do is believe it. All you have to do, Christian, is believe in this truth. Here we go. I'm going to give you a new, uh, a new cycle. Are you ready? This one's complicated. Here goes like this. Believe, enjoy, repeat. Believe, enjoy, repeat. Believe that God loves you so much. Enjoy that truth and then do it all over again. Believe that at the cross, God made you who you always wanted to become, but were never able to become. Enjoy that reality and go do it again. Believe that at the cross, you were rescued and redeemed from what was and what couldn't be to now what is and will be forever. Believe it with all of your heart. Just trust in it and then do it all over again. This is so different for most of us, isn't it? We think that we're a sinner trying to become a saint, And when we think that way, we kind of give ourselves permission to be a sinner. That's just who I am. I'm just pretty messed up. No, you're not. You're a saint. Stop acting like that. Saints don't do that stuff. Mature into who you are. It's a completely different paradigm shift. A few other things real fast, and we'll call it a day. Jesus says that the most powerful law now, the most important rule now for you is to love. That's an interesting one, to love. That's the new command. Yeah, you know why? Because you've been freed from thinking about yourself and your vicious cycle. You no longer have to worry if you're good with God. You no longer have to worry if you're a son of God. You no longer have to worry if you're performing well enough for God. You are a son. You are loved. You are good enough. Now, Christian, get busy loving other people because that's been taken care of for you. The rest of the world's so busy focusing on themselves. Am I good enough? Am I strong enough? Do people like me? The answer in Christ is yes, yes, yes. And so now you're free. I don't got to worry about any of that cycle stuff anymore. I just get to worry about other people. Wow. Let me, let me show you real fast how, how you know what cycle you're on. If you're on the sin cycle, or if you're on what I call the savior cycle, here's how you'll know. Read a scripture or two and see how you interpret it. Let me give you an example real fast. Hebrews 11:6 says this. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Pretty straightforward text. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. If you're stuck in the sin cycle, here's how you'll read that. I don't have enough faith. I bet I don't please God. God is probably angry with me because of my lack of faith. I need to try harder. Does anybody have a new checklist out there to prove so that I can prove I have enough faith to God? That's how most of us will read that passage. If you're in the Savior cycle, here's how you read that passage. Nothing in this world pleases God more 
than when I just trust him, than when I just believe in him. All I have to do is believe, and God is so happy with me. I get to experience the pleasure of God by just saying yes to him and saying yes to all that he's done for me. See how drastically different that is? One is all about you and who you're not. One's all about Christ and who he made you to be. That's what amazing grace is. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. You gave me a second chance on the vicious cycle. Thank you so much. Amazing grace, you broke the cycle down forever. I'm a saint. I'm a son. I'm free in Christ. Now, some of you are thinking, but yeah, I don't look like that. I don't feel like that. I feel like the other stuff. I feel like the yucky caterpillar in the lump of coal. Here's the thing, though. If you have a heart transplant, it takes a while for your new heart to take. You're not just going to go run a marathon the, the next day after a, a heart transplant, are you? No, the new heart has to take. You have to mature into it. That's what's happening with you, Christian. You're just maturing into who you need to become, who God will make you. And it's just taking some time. You had a really bad heart before, and now you have a really good one. When we live in the light of that truth, not only will our, our lives be affected, but I think that will drastically impact the lives of our kids and the lives of our kids' kids. See, today we're talking about dedicating kids to the Lord and dedicating ourselves to those kids. If there's a faith that I want to pass on to the next generation, it's this one. It's the Savior cycle. I don't want to pass on the sin cycle. Some of you, your friends and family look at your faith and they look at your life and they're like, I don't want a part of that. It's burdensome and taxing and joyless. Why would I want to be a part of that? You're in the sin cycle. Let's live out the Savior cycle. Because when we live that out and there's freedom and joy and rest, and abundance and peace, people want a part of that. And I hope that our kids will want a part of that especially. All right, let me play that over and get you out of here. God, thank you so much for this message. Well, I'm just convicted at this point. I know that some of us have never trusted you with our entire lives. We honestly believe that it's up to us to make it happen. And so God, now with our heads bowed and our, and our hearts kind of raw and open before you, we just want to recommit. We just want to say that we believe. And right now, if it's your first time ever saying to God, like, I believe in you. I believe that you destroyed that cycle in my life. I believe that you did it all for me. I don't have to do it anymore on my own. If you believe that for the first time, would you just raise your hand this morning? If it's your very first time ever thinking, Jesus, yeah, it's what you did. It's not what I have to do. Just raise your hand this morning. I just want to pray this over you. God, we give you our lives because we've made a mess of them. And yet because of your great love for us, you've taken them and made something magnificent out of them. Thank you so much for taking us from slaves to sons, from sinners to saints, from those enslaved in a cycle to those who get to experience Christ. Help us to know, God, that's who we are now. We just have to mature into that, and you will help us every step of the way to do it. Make it so. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Hey, if you raised your hand this morning, come find me afterwards. I'd love to talk to you more about, about this and what Christ has done for you. Thank you for an amazing morning. Families love you so much. Great to have you. Be sure to drop your dollar in the bin on the way out. We're helping a family pay their rent tomorrow. Love to have you be a part of that. We'll see you soon.